0: Welcome to TCC Alive, a podcast of Tulare Community Church.
1: Hey, TCC. Thanks for joining us. Open up your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Timothy chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. We're going to finish out this chapter today. Uh, As you're turning there, let me also say happy Memorial Day weekend to you. Uh, The fact that you're tuning in here means uh, you may be on a beach somewhere. Uh, If so, I do hope that you get some rest and have a nice vacation and uh, get some time to reflect a little on our nation and on sacrifice. You know, I think that there can be some tension between the church and these kinds of holidays. There can be a tension between nationalism and Christianity, or between patriotism and Christianity. And when it comes to those things, it's important to get the order right. As Christians, we are primarily citizens of God's kingdom, and ultimately our allegiance is to Christ. God is a jealous God, and he will suffer no rivals. So if we're putting anything above him and his kingdom, then that is nothing but idolatry. So we have to get the order right. But Christianity is lived out here on earth. It's lived out in particular places, in particular times. And so as Christians, we are called to be good earthly citizens. We saw this earlier in 1 Timothy. Paul says this, I urge then first of all that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And he says in Romans, give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. And so as Christians in this nation, we are called to honor those who have given their lives in service to this country. That's a fitting and wholly appropriate thing for Christians to do. Give to everyone what you owe them. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor, because that is good and pleases God our Savior. We do everything for his honor and for his glory, and we want everything that we do, even the way that we observe Memorial Day, to be pleasing to him. God is the righteous judge, and as we shall see in our text today, he will hold us to account for every good or evil deed we do. So hear the words of the Lord. 1 Timothy chapter 5. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning you are to reprove before everyone, so that the others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. The sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. So if you were here last Sunday, you'll remember that previously in the chapter, the Apostle Paul was talking to Timothy about fixing a widow ministry that was going on in Ephesus. It wasn't working properly. People were taking advantage of it and they were becoming burdens to the church. So the verse right before our section said this. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her care, she should continue to help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. So this is an issue of properly allocating resources so that the ministry and mission of the church flourishes. And from that, Paul pivots to talking about elders and gives a pastor's favorite line. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. But why is he talking about elders? He already talked about elders in chapter 3. We went over it. He talks about uh, the qualifications for being elder. He says it's a noble task. He already went over it. So why is he circling back to it? Well, it seems to me that something has occurred to him while he was writing this. He was saying that widows who are not really in need, widows that have family that can take care of themselves, or widows who are personally well-off, uh, shouldn't be taking advantage of the church. They shouldn't be a burden to the church that way. That's not an appropriate use of the church's resources. But if you're hearing that, a thought might occur to you. Is not an appropriate use of the church's resources to pay a pastor i don't want to get our pastoral staff into too much trouble but that is a legitimate question that arises here is that an appropriate form of organizational structure for a church i think that's what's in paul's mind because he says that elders and especially those who preach and teach are worthy of double honor and then he goes on to say in the next verse verse 18 for scripture says do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain and the worker deserves his wages Now, some of you might be thinking, oxen? You lost me on that. What is he talking about? Well, he's quoting from the Old Testament from the Law of Moses. And the great thing here is Paul actually explains this point for us when he writes to the church in Corinth. He says this, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk. Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because whoever ploughs and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? And then he says in verse 13 and 14, Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple, and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. The Lord has commanded. Jesus said a worker deserves his wages. He says that when he sends out his disciples to do ministry. Luke chapter 10, Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, Peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. So it's pretty clear and authoritative in Scripture that a church model wherein the pastors are supported by church resources is a perfectly appropriate thing. It is in alignment with the teachings of Scripture. But it's a good question to ask and to examine, in part because this is not the only way of doing things. There are other models for this. A bivocational model is becoming increasingly popular where a pastor works part-time somewhere and part-time at the church. Paul worked as a tent maker. In fact, Paul, in that same Corinthian passage, says this, But I have not used any of these rites, and I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me, for I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel! If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge, and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Rick Warren is the pastor of Saddleback Church, and he works there for free. He writes books, and one of his books got real big, and he calculated how much the church had provided for him over the years, and he paid it all back. And now he still serves as pastor, but he makes his living from his writing. And like Paul here, I think that is also honoring to God. Coincidentally, I'm also an author, so. If you ever want to get me off the TCC payroll, you know, spread the word. Tell a friend, you know, New York Times bestseller list. Let's make it happen, right? Let's save TCC some money. I'm down with that. So there are different ways and different modes for approaching this. But the important thing is we want all of our deeds as a church and as individuals to be pleasing and honoring to God. How we conduct ourselves as a church should foster righteousness. So it is appropriate and right not to be a burden to the church. And it is appropriate and right that a worker receives his wages. And furthermore, it is right and appropriate to honor church leaders and preachers and teachers materially and otherwise. And that honor is due in part because those who are overseers of the church are held to a higher standard. Uh, go back and read the qualifications for elder or deacon. It's a high standard. Or listen to this from James, chapter three, verse one. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And I think that's true both in the life to come, when we stand before God in judgment, but also in this life. There's greater scrutiny. And that's true for all those who are in leadership, even in the world. There's greater scrutiny of the president. There's greater scrutiny of CEOs. There's greater scrutiny of head coaches. There's greater scrutiny of the boss. You're going to get judged. You're going to get criticized. You're going to hear unflattering things said about you, even in the church. Paul got judged. Paul got criticized. Paul got accused of things. Remember what he said in 1 Corinthians? This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me you're going to get it in leadership. And so he says in verse 19, do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. You're going to hear complaints. You're going to hear accusations against leaders. So don't pay them any attention unless it's substantive. Two or more right? That's a legal standard. It's like uh, innocent until proven guilty. It's not rushed to judgment. It's thoroughly examined. It's beyond reasonable doubt. Two or more witnesses is a legal standard instituted in the law of Moses, Deuteronomy. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a person is to be put to death. But no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. You know, it's funny, you'll hear Christians all the time say, where two or more are gathered, you'll be there, right? God will be there. And that's true as far as it goes. God is omnipresent he's with us always and he promises to never leave us or forsake us but the line two or more is really in reference to this two or more witnesses the specific line comes to us from jesus in matthew chapter 18 the context of it is verses 15 through 20 in your bible there might even be a heading over it in the niv the heading says dealing with sin in the church that's the context. "'Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, "'and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. "'Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, "'it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. "'For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them.'" Disciplining is hard, and it can be brutal. Look at verse 20 in our passage. "'But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone.'" so that the others may take warning. That's serious business. We don't mess around with sin. Habitual, perpetual, unrepentant sin needs to be stomped out by the church. But to do that well, we really need God's Spirit to guide us which is why he promises it to us. Where two or more are gathered, that's the context. Jesus comforts us and tells us that it's through his authority and his spirit and his presence that we enact church discipline. Paul goes on, verse 21, I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels. Right? God is watching, and he will hold what we do to account. So, keep these instructions without partiality and do nothing out of favoritism. Oh, that can be an issue in regards to church discipline. You know, he's my friend, and so you look the other way. Or, he's important. He gives a lot of money to this church, so you look the other way. But God is watching, and he doesn't show favoritism. And so because leaders are held to a higher standard and there's a lot at stake, Paul tells Timothy in verse 22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. There's a lot of reasons for laying on hands in the Bible, but in the context, he seems to be talking about ordination. We see this to this day. When we ordain people in this church, the person kneels and the elders gather around him and lay hands on him. Don't be hasty about who you ordain. Be deliberative and thoughtful. Don't do it out of partiality or favoritism. Make sure that they actually meet the qualifications to be an overseer. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. And then Paul, seemingly out of the blue, says this, Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. feels a little random, but I think these thoughts are connected. What does it mean to keep yourself pure? It's not about aestheticism. It's not about whether we drink or we don't drink. You know, we can think of righteousness in such superficial ways, and it can be reduced to nothing but appearances. And perhaps that's what's going on with Timothy, is that he's too concerned about how things might look. You know, I don't want people to think that I'm a drunkard, I don't want people to think that I'm addicted to much wine. And so I'm just going to abstain so that I will be above reproach. But that doesn't make you pure. And it doesn't keep you pure. And so, Timothy, take a little wine. It'll help with your stomach problems. You know, real purity is living our lives in ways that bring honor and glory to God. It says in 1 Corinthians. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And that's really the theme and pressing point of this passage. Everything that we do, from the way we organize our churches, to the way we treat our leaders, to the way we enact discipline, to the way we select elders, and to our personal lives, everything that we do should be done for the glory and honor of God. That is a righteous and pure life that isn't superficial or a matter of appearance because appearances can be deceiving. Verse 24, The sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. Some sins are obvious. comes out right in front of everyone. Everyone knows about it. It's in full view, like a scarlet letter on them. But for others, it trails behind them. And that came up recently when we were talking about Rabbi Zacharias. He was entangled in sin, but we didn't know it. Didn't know it until after his death. And then it all comes out. It trailed behind him. In the 1944 film Double Indemnity, which is about insurance fraud and murder, in the story, the main character, Walter Neff, plans this elaborate murder and he carries it out. And the plan seems to work perfectly. You know, No way is he getting caught, it was, it was flawless. But right after he does it, right after it went so well and so perfectly, he says this, "'Suddenly it came over me that everything would go wrong. "'Sounds crazy, Keyes, but it's true, so help me. "'I couldn't hear my own footsteps. "'It was the walk of a dead man. "'Our sin will catch up to us. "'It will come out one way or another.'" God is watching, and we will have to give an account for every word and deed, as it says in 2 Corinthians. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. If you are entangled in sin today, if you are living your life in fear of being found out, if you're waiting for the shoe to finally drop, please know that there's a way out. You don't have to live in fear. You don't have to live in hiding. You don't need to live in the darkness of your heart. That's the promise of Christianity, that Jesus takes on our sin. He pays the price for our sin so that we don't have to if we turn to him in faith. The Bible declares in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That can be hard. It doesn't come without pain, but it does come with forgiveness. If you're entangled in sin, turn in repentance and confess it before God and man as needed. Don't let your sins trail behind you, or they'll stalk you forever. But this is not only about our personal sins. This is also about God's justice. Now, we can look around at the world and see all manner of evil and wickedness, and people seem to get away with it. They don't get their comeuppance. They get away with it. And so we want to take matters into our own hands. We want to solve the problem ourselves. There's a 2002 movie called Insomnia, starring Al Pacino, And in the story, Al Pacino plays a cop who's being investigated by internal affairs over some alleged wrongdoing in a case he worked that involved a child murderer named Dobbs. Now, internal affairs can't prove anything, but his conscience is eating away at him so that he can't sleep, till at last he confesses. Uh, Take a look at this scene.
0: The second I met this guy Dobbs, I knew he was guilty. That's what I do, that's my job, I assign guilt. You find the evidence, figure out who did it, and then you you go get them and put them away. This time there wasn't enough evidence, see. Man, it's reasonable doubt to a jury, because a jury never met a child murderer before, but I have. Anyway, I, uh, I went and took some blood samples from the boy's dead body. And I planted them in Dobbs' apartment. I could feel it right there. This is going to catch up with me. I don't do things like that. So how did it catch up with you? Internal Affairs is coming down on our department, and Hap, he was going to cut a deal and bring me straight into it. They would have reopened Dobbs's case, and he'd have walked. Now that's not going to happen. I don't know how... how I feel about that. But Dobbs was guilty. Dobbs needed to be convicted. So, the end. Justifies the means.
1: Right? See, Dobbs was going to get away with it. So he has to take justice into his own hands. And he winds up with blood on them. The ends don't justify the means. Every deed and every action must be done to the glory and honor of God. We need to recognize that some sins trail behind, but one day God will bring it all to account, and we need to trust in his justice and not take things into our own hands. It says in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. We want to be the ones to avenge. We want to be the arbiters of God's justice. And that probably isn't going to look as extreme as planting evidence. But it could be something as simple as harboring hatred in your heart. Oh, there is a place for judgment among Christians. That's why we have church discipline. That's why Jesus gives us the model for church discipline but it must be done in righteousness. So when it comes to our response to our own sins, keep yourself pure. When it comes to our response to other people's sins, keep yourself pure. And so too when it comes to good deeds. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. Some good deeds are obvious and can't be hidden, even if we're not trying to boast or draw attention to ourselves. But some are hidden. Some are secret. But God is watching. God is the good judge. Justice will ultimately be done. He will render his good verdict. That is the role of our sovereign. Our role is to live righteous lives in everything that we do. From the way we organize our churches to the way we treat our leaders to the way we enact discipline to the way we select elders to the way we handle our sin to the manner in which we do good works to the way that we even commemorate Memorial Day. Everything that we do for the honor and glory of God. Thanks for
0: listening. If you want to know more about the ministries and mission of Tulare Community Church, visit us at tccalive.org.